Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and welcome at the beginning of a new week. And have we got it for you tonight, I can tell you. The home of common sense, nothing woke here. And just as I warned, the chickens are coming home to roost. We're now told today at an energy conference in Sydney that power prices will soar by at least 35% next year. Where are you, Albo? $275 cheaper weren't our electricity bills going to be? Eh? I've told you all along about the National Economic Suicide Note. I've been saying it now for over five years. Well, it's being written. The Alinta chief executive told an energy conference in Sydney today, and I quote, it is horrendous, it is unpalatable. We don't want energy consumers getting their power bills and setting fire to them. As we said, there are real issues around energy pricing that we have right now. Well, I'll talk tonight to the federal member for Flynn in Queensland. In coal, gas and agriculture country, his maiden speech is compulsory reading. More of that later. I'll also argue tonight for a royal commission to the handling of coronavirus. The consequences are out of control. Of course, we won't get one because both parties were complicit. But did you notice that a Queensland police officer who helped his daughter cross the Queensland border at the height of Queensland's COVID restrictions, acting as a loving dad, the daughter at the time was struggling with her mental health. The father feared she might take her own life. He's a police officer. He's been in court, career ruined, charged with a single count of misconduct in public office. He was a policeman. He's lost his reputation and his career, acting as a loving dad. The court was told he was an upstanding man, Robert William Eichenloff, with no criminal history, friends and family attesting to his exemplary character. Thank God for the district court judge, John Allen, who sentenced him to a 120 hour community service order, but no conviction recorded. The judge had no choice. Of course, it was the law in this Stalin-like Queensland. The daughter, 21, was fined more than $4,000. This is government off its head. That's why we need a royal commission into the response to this coronavirus. And where's this bloke Flannery, the Australian of the year, Tim Flannery? He handed in his professorial robes. It was never going to rain again, remember? The dams would never fill. Now Sydney records its wettest year on record. And apparently, sorry, little chance of relief. And remember the recent South Australian election and the electorate anointed the new wonder boy of the Labor Party, Peter Malinowskis. And the biggest promise was, quote, when South Australians call Triple O, there's a chance the ambulance will roll up on time. And he climbed into the Liberal government. You wouldn't be waiting for an ambulance under Peter Malinowskis. Well, six months after trouncing the first time Liberal government of a very ordinary Liberal Premier, he wasn't worth much, that's Stephen Marshall. Anyway, the wonder boy, Labor's wonder boy to Peter, Peter Malinowskis has presided over the four highest months of ambulance ramping, that's ambulances just queuing up and waiting, recorded in South Australian history. The four highest. Sick people in South Australia are spending almost 4,000 hours a month waiting in ambulances to be treated in hospitals. On the Marshall government's watch, ramping reached a high in May last year of 2,800 hours. 4,000 under the Wonder Boy. There you are. Is the electorate stupid or are politicians dishonest? I'll talk to Innes Willox, the CEO of the Australian Industry Group, as to where we are on stage three tax cuts. Don't kid yourself. The federal Labor government aren't committed to honouring their promise. They've just kicked the can down the road. And here we go again. A visitor in town to tell us what's wrong with education. But she told us that 11 years ago. And we've got worse. And what is happening at Opera Australia? Listen in and I'll tell you. I'm an opera lover. And the Greens propaganda about us being a renewable energy superpower is already being blown apart. You'll find it all here. You're viewing ADH, I'm Alan Jones. As my listeners and viewers have learnt over the years, I regard them as my best researchers. That's why I answer all my correspondence and I can assure you it is voluminous. But my writers are arguing that there must be something bordering on a Royal Commission to investigate the appalling and damaging government response to coronavirus. 
Only recently, the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, spoke not only about the economic cost of the government response to COVID-19, but the greatest cost, that of our freedom and our humanity. As Tony Abbott said, and I quote, there is a decline in educational attainments, especially for youngsters without ready access to parent teachers, plus two years of lost social development. The people in aged care facilities who went for two years, largely without visitors. The delayed treatments and diagnoses of other diseases as health systems prioritised COVID, plus the mental health issues that lockdowns exacerbated. He said the businesses closed and the economic opportunities lost. It all adds up to awakening, a weakening of national morale from which it may, ta may take years to recover. Tony Abbott, correct. Recently in this country, we were visited by the Stanford University professor and critic of lockdowns, Professor Jai Bhattacharya. Now remember the message was repeated that only public health experts were allowed to guide public policy, but public health experts like Professor Bhattacharya were ignored when they argued for a different approach to lockdowns. There is a new prime minister designate in Italy, Giorgia Maloney. She's now the force behind a parliamentary inquiry in Italy into what Maloney calls, quote, the disastrous management of the pandemic. She's talking about a commission in front of which, quote, everyone will be called to assume their responsibilities, unquote. You will recall when this began, governments and leading politicians were slaves to international, quote unquote, modelling. Chief amongst advisers and modellers was Professor Neil Ferguson from the MRC Centre for Global Infectious Disease Analysis at Imperial College London, advising the British government. In 2001, his modelling predicted 150,000 people would die from mad cow disease. There were fewer than 200 deaths. In 2005, he said up to 200 million people could be killed from bird flu. 282 people died, not 200 million. In 2009, he advised the British government, and of course his advice went worldwide, that swine flu would lead to 65,000 UK deaths. Well, there weren't 65,000, there were 457. His alarmism led governments all over the world into economic, business and personal black holes. No one has been made accountable. In the middle of all of this, a leading economist in the Victorian Department of Finance and Treasury, Sanjeev Sablok, said he had resigned, quote, so that I would be free to speak out against the state government's management of the COVID-19 infection. I made a number of criticisms of the state government on social media. The head of human relations at Treasury asked me to remove them. I resigned on the same day. The only honourable course, he said, for a free citizen of Australia, unquote. He went on. I never dreamt I would see some of the tactics being used to defend the state's health. The pandemic policies being pursued in Australia, he said, particularly in Victoria, are the most heavy handed possible, a sledgehammer to kill a swarm of flies, unquote. Now I made these very points myself two and three years ago. I was ridiculed, well, should I be saying not ridiculed, it should be canceled, canceled. You can't say that. Well, Sanjeev Sablok went on in 2020 and how accurate are his comments today when he said, quote, these policies are having hugely adverse economic, social and health effects with the poorer sections of the community who don't have the ability to work at home suffering the most. Australia is signalling to the world that it's closed for business and doesn't care for human freedoms. 2020. He further added, and I've been saying this for months, quote, the whole thing hinges on the scare created by politicians and health professionals. He said, for instance, Victoria's Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, claimed it is, quote, the greatest public health challenge since the Spanish flu. This is no Spanish flu, said the good doctor. He said the Spanish flu killed at least 50 million people worldwide in 1918, when the global population was 1.8 billion. He said proportionately, to be as lethal as the Spanish flu, a virus would have to kill at least 200 million people today, unquote. Well, the Lancet Medical Journal is an independent international medical journal dating back to 1823, very authoritative. It argued, quote, in our analysis, full lockdowns and widespread COVID-19 testing were not associated 
with reductions in the number of critical cases of overall mortality, unquote. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute, yes, funded by the Murdoch family, analysed data from across Melbourne and found that out of one million enrolments, just 337 students may have acquired the COVID-19 infections at schools. The Murdoch Institute argued, quote, schools and early childhood education and care are unlikely to drive transmission, unquote. Roger Coops from the American Institute of Economic Research, I could quote hundreds of these people, but he has written, quote, the mask mandate idea is a truly ridiculous knee-jerk reaction and needs to be withdrawn and thrown in the waste bin of disastrous policy along with lockdowns and school closures, unquote. We urgently need, I'm saying tonight, the deepest and widest possible inquiry into the appalling fear-mongering over coronavirus and the damage that's been done to so many. RJ Smith is a prominent American author who wrote, and I quote, there is a disaster afoot, but it's not the COVID-19 virus. It is the putative remedy, a fact we'll not appreciate until it's too late, unquote. Well, here we are, spiraling debt, businesses out of business, small business owing taxes that can't pay, children denied schooling, the consequences of which we won't know for some time, suicide rates escalating, personal and business losses unimaginable. And in all of this, no politician or public servant giving orders to all of us, no politician or public servant lost a single dollar. There won't be the inquiry we need because both major political parties were complicit in the damage that's been done. We will be made to live with the disgrace and no one will apologize for it. I've said on many occasions, it's time for the Albanese government to end the rhetoric and get on with action. Only at the end of last week, many were asking, where's Albo? At that stage, he had not held a formal media conference for a week. He was at a midnight oil gig at the Horden Pavilion and had a photo opportunity with the Solomon Islands Prime Minister, who seems to walk on both sides of the street, China on one side and us on the other. The issue of repatriating the wives and children of ISIS members from Syria has significantly divided sections of the community. The deputy leader of the federal opposition, Susan Lee, is right when she said of the ISIS issue, and I quote, this is not a question of compassion. It is a question of keeping Australians safe. She said the prime minister is completely missing in action on this issue. Matt Canavan is one of the smartest people in Australian politics. And he said, quote, we've barely seen Mr. Albanese since the Rabbitohs lost the preliminary final. Surely he can't be that upset. Where is he? And while I find it difficult to give any political points to the New South Wales Liberal MP, Alex Hawke, he did make a valid point when he said, quote, I prefer Albo to be doing nothing. If he does the things he wants to, we will be in massive trouble, unquote. Well, it appears the central issue here commanding backroom attention within the Labor Party is the tax cuts, stage three, which come into being in 2024. It's a pretty simple story. Labor in opposition voted for these tax cuts and in two election campaigns, 2019 and 2022, argued support for them. I said last week the Treasurer Jim Chalmers has caused trouble for the Labor Party on all of this, creating the impression that Labor might have to reverse the tax promise because of the state of the economy. An absurd point, because as I said, these cuts come into being in 2024. Albanese has been in the parliament a long time. I'm sure he sensed that others were digging a hole for him and he wasn't going to fall into it. He seems to have made sure that at least one of the headlines today should say that Albanese has rejected any suggestion to overhaul the stage three tax cuts, but don't be fooled, the battle is not over. While the Prime Minister says today our position hasn't changed, that may be true, but nor has the debate within the Labor Party. And stage three tax cuts almost certainly have been kicked down the road until next year's May budget. It's interesting to note that the Prime Minister's own electorate of Graindler is ranked fourth in the nation for the highest percentage of workers earning more than $104,000 a year. Given that the stage three tax cuts improve the lot of everyone, over $45,000, Albo's electorate stands to be a big loser if changes are made. It appears there'll be nothing in the October 25 budget about stage three, but the interesting question is a simple one. Why is it so hard to say we will honour our election promise? 
There are good reasons why the government should. On the line, I have the chief executive of the National Employer Association, the industry group, Australian industry group, Innes Willocks. Innes, thank you for your time. What is all this about? Well, Alan, this is, as you said, stage three. So it follows ipso facto. There have been two earlier stages in these tax cuts, and they were aimed at low and middle income earners. Stage three really impacts everyone. Uh, and the biggest impact is for people earning between forty-five dollars and $200,000. That's a big gap. But everyone earning in that range and above uh, is way better off under these tax cuts. Now, the position that we take, Alan, is that these are good, these tax cuts, when they are meant to come in in 2024, are good for fairness, they're good for investment, they're good for employment, and they're good for saving. And if we want to put more money into people's pockets overall, the uh, nurses, teachers, police officers, factory workers, tradies, this is a sustainable way of doing it and something that has gone through two elections yeah. almost without. So that's why we think it's positive and it's fair well, as well. How do we dismantle its stupidity, and it is stupidity, that the tax cuts benefit the rich, when the reality is the people on greater incomes pay more tax? The top 10% of earners in Australia pay 80% of the tax. The top 10% pay 80% of all income taxes. So in us, it simply follows that when you cut taxes, you are going to reduce the tax burden of people currently paying more tax. Well, Alan, the reality is that this, if you're into sort of this, that line of argument, these tax changes don't alter anything in terms of the people who contribute the most to tax. So the top 1% of tax earners still will pay about 17% of the total income yeah. tax take that change under this scenario what it does do is prevent great opportunities for people uh, say you're on $120,000 a year you'll be over $1,800 a year better off under these tax cuts mm. now that's a positive thing for the economy because it will encourage people to invest and to save as I mentioned but it also simplifies the stage three tax yeah. system yeah. simplifies taxes and takes out yeah. A, a whole bracket. The last point I'd make is these were originally intended back when they were supposed to deal with what's called bracket creep, so that when you go, when you earn more money or get an, a pay rise, you move up into a new tax bracket, you get penalised as a result of that. So this is about moving people, up, moving the tax scales mm. up with as people's incomes move up. That's what's fair about and it. And not being punished, you'd still pay 30 cents in the dollar. Just for our viewers, we've had stage one and two, as Innes said, where the 19 cents in the dollar was extended from 41,000 to 45,000. So 19 cents in the dollar, 45,000. Then the 37 cents in stage three, that's that cut tax bracket, that's gone. So from 45,001 up to 200,000, you pay 30 cents in the dollar. Now, as Innes has said, and I agree, it's a sensible proposition. It encourages people to do well and keep more of what they earn from doing well. Of course, over 200,000, it's still 45 cents in the dollar. And yes, a politician on 217,000 will get a tax cut of almost 10,000, and a registered nurse on 72,000 will get a tax cut of $681. But Innes, how is this exceptional? This even should, shouldn't even be an argument. Well, Alan, it's just simple maths. It's nothing more or less than that. The more you earn, the better off yeah. you'll be as a result. That's just the simple equation here that we all deal with. The, where the real focus is, is on those, as I mentioned, the teacher, the nurse, the police officer, the tradie, the factory worker. They will be the ones who will be uh, better off in a, and in a position to spend that money as a result of this. Now, we spent a long time, Alan, arguing about wage increases and the unions pushing unsustainable yes. waging on employers. This is a more sustainable way mm. that's been agreed now through elections to get more money mm. into people's pockets. On which you don't pay tax. On the benefit on the benefit that comes to you, you're not paying tax on it. If you had a wage increase, you would pay tax on it. Absolutely. So the, this is a big advantage for people. And this is why it's been popular and it was the subject of political debate when it was introduced and then agreed by both major parties. Mm. The other point I'd make, Alan, is that this has gone through two election cycles. 
Um, and people have planned around it. You know, households have planned around it. Businesses have also planned yeah. around it. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, to take that away at some point mm. would be, quite frankly, well, seen as a bit of a breach. Well, I mean, it's political dynamite. It's political dynamite. If the Albanese government were to back down on implementing stage three, 2.5 million middle-income Australians, 2.5 million, they all vote, will pay thousands of dollars in additional tax. A wage earner on 120,000 would be $1,875 worse off. A household of two, one's on 120, the other's on 80, they would be collectively $2,750 worse off. This is political dynamite. And, and, but Innes, this is 2024. I mean, when the tax cuts are due, and when you see where interest rates are going, the forecasts, if you believe forecasts, say there'd be a downturn in economic growth in the next couple of years, the economy would be very weak. We might get inflation back to 3%, but we'd have knocked the guts out of the economy. So 2024 is a perfect time for the tax cuts. Well, absolutely. We don't know what the economy no. will be like in 2024. We have a lot of predictions, a lot of forecasts around that. But it's almost two years away. And, you know, you've got to give people hope aspirational people hope that they, if they work harder, they earn more money, they will be able to put more into their pocket uh, and put it put more into their pocket in a sustainable way. You know, 2024 may well be the perfect time for tax cuts and that's why we shouldn't be ruling that out now. Absolutely. That's why it's been thing to have this argument and this discussion Absolutely. Just, just let me take it you to Sally McManus. Let, let me take you to Sally McManus. Sorry, Innes, to Sally McManus from the ACTU. She said that when stage three was introduced in 2018, the world was a different place. She said no COVID, no lockdowns, there was no job keeper. And while wages were stagnant then, workers were not facing the absolute cost of living crisis confronting them today. How do you respond to those comments? A couple of points quickly, Alan. One was, as you said, these have been in place since 2018. Uh, 2024 is six years after that. So governments have had time to plan around that. Treasuries have had time to plan around that. Um, the fact still is that everyone wants to have more money in their pocket, absolutely. But at a time when businesses are doing it tough, the global economy is doing it tough, a planned, pre-planned tax cut is the best, most straightforward, most sustainable way for people to get more money in their pocket to either spend or save as they see fit. Mm. That's what's attractive about Absolutely. this. Absolutely. And let's repeat the final point you made. After all this is over, if stage three goes ahead, there's been an analysis of all this. The personal income tax paid by high income earners would be very similar after the full stage three that it was before. Uh, the top rate at 45% would remain unchanged, but would apply to taxable incomes over 200,000 instead of 180. But a distributional analysis undertaken by Treasury confirms what Innes said. The top 1% of taxpayers would pay 17% of total income tax in 2024-25, but previously they only paid 16.7%. So the top 1% Innes would be paying more tax under this system. Yeah, proportionally. So that's where the fairness, this the, the argument that this isn't fair falls apart because it is not distorting or skewing things so that those who earn more are paying less of the total tax cut take. That's the basis of the argument that's been made and Treasury itself has blown that out of the water. Absolutely. What this is about, just putting more money into people's pockets in a sustainable mm. way and something that's been agreed for and planned for for six years. Absolutely. And we shouldn't be talking about it now, as you said, because this is 2024. Always great to talk to you. Beacon of common sense in us. We'll keep in touch on this and other matters. But thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Alan. There you are. Widely experienced Innes Wilcox. He's been in this game a long time. Knows the scene backwards. It's fairly common sense, isn't it? We'll talk to him again, too, as these matters continue to be debated. I don't know how many times Mark Latham and I have sought to dismantle this notion that everything's okay in the education of our children. You check with any child their general knowledge of things that you assumed they would know and you'll be met with a blank face. There are many reasons for this. Only last week we learned from Glenn Fay, the Program Director in Education Policy at the Centre for Independent Studies, that Australian schools by international standards have some of the most disruptive classrooms on earth. On the OECD's index of disciplinary climate, 
not, it's got nothing to do with climate change. That's the climate in the, in the classroom. Australia ranks 70th out of 77 school systems. That's it, more dysfunctional than all but five. Two in five students say classmates don't listen to teachers. Nearly half say there is noise and disorder in most or all lessons. And of course, this has a clear impact on student outcomes and it affects teachers. These in more, those in more disruptive schools, as Glenn Fay has argued, report lower job satisfaction. These are teachers and less confidence in their work. And many graduate teachers are not adequately prepared in classroom management during their training. Well, coming to Australia is a woman, Catherine Burblesing, and she will appear at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney on a discussion about building world-class schools. But we should be roping in every education minister to learn from Catherine Burblesing about what is wrong with education and how to repair it. But after all, she's been here before, over 10 years ago, saying things then that still have to be said now. She's described as Britain's strictest headmistress. Yet all she's doing is what education did years ago until it was dismantled by the lefties and the Marxists. No mobile phones, get a detention for, getting a, for forgetting a pencil case. Timetables are taught by rote learning. Progressive, quote unquote, education methods, which are really regressive, are out the door. Gratitude is practiced, expectations are high. Catherine Burblesing was actually born in New Zealand, grew up in Canada, went to Oxford University. She is critical of what she called years ago, the state's heavy interference in education and in society, that's government. The state's heavy interference in education and in society. And she says that interference, quote, rids us all of personal and collective responsibility. Let the state, let the government do it. And then this, children depend on their parents to teach them right from wrong, but she said, because so many parents behave like children themselves, what hope is there for their children? But then she says the state almost encourages these same people to have children. She says it gets worse. The system not only encourages such people to have children, it encourages them to raise those children as a single parent because the father doesn't want to lose his welfare benefits by living with the mother. And that might cause that to happen. She makes the further point that parents have lost authority, that they can't discipline their own children because the children cry abuse and threaten to call the police and are encouraged to do so. Catherine Burblesing says, because of the absence of discipline, good children are, quote, left in the dark because nobody notices and they then become bad in an effort to gain attention. Now, I spoke to Catherine Burblesing 11 years ago in the wake of the riots in the UK arising out of a, the police shooting of a man, and suddenly the police faced a violent mob. It was in Tottenham, where gangs operated. Buildings were burnt down, windows were smashed, and glass and bottles and debris clogged the roads. 1,700 people were charged. 1,200 had gone through the criminal justice system before, and many of the rioters were young. At the time, Catherine Burblesing spoke on the subject, and I interviewed her on this, London schools and the London riots, too much nanny state. And she said, quote, children are never held to account for what they do. Is it any wonder they decided to show the police that they're in charge? They've been in charge of our schools and our buses for years. Why not the streets? Unquote. This has a ring about it, doesn't it, here? The marches for climate change and Black Lives Matter, appalling behaviour, nothing happens. But as Catherine Burblesing said, it wasn't just the system that failed when it came to rioters. Listen to this. When the violence started, the politicians were nowhere to be seen. And she wrote, what is leadership if it isn't about being there, pointing to the light, leading your people out of darkness at moments of crisis? Didn't that happen here? In Black Lives Matter, not a politician was prepared to open his or her mouth. As this lady says, this begins with education and discipline in the classroom. Her dream is for all schools to become interesting and exciting places of learning where children feel safe, happy and free to aim to be the best that they can be. Well, I'm sorry, we've got a long way to go to reach that point, but how many children are being damaged along the way? Well, contrary to what may be thought by the wider electorate, there is any amount of common sense within the coalition opposition in Canberra, but 
too infrequently, it doesn't get a voice. Matt Canavan, of course, is a beacon of common sense. Alex Antich, the senator from South Australia, is all class. But these people can't get a Guernsey. The coalition is still far too woke, but there is a breath of fresh air. The new member for the rural electorate of Flynn in Queensland, Colin Boyce. Now, he was the state member for Calide in the Queensland Parliament, but he got onto the front foot immediately as a candidate, which is exactly what the coalition should be doing now. And Colin Boyce argued that a net zero emission target would entrench Australia into a lower standard of living, that it would be people in regional areas who'd bear the brunt of it. His electorate is dominated by emissions, heavy mining and agriculture. Agriculture never mentioned by Bowen as a victim of Labor policy. In Colin Boyce's electorate, mining and agriculture are the two biggest employers. And Colin Boyce is now the new federal member for Flynn, says a net zero, zero policy would put an end to the coal-fired power station that's needed to power Gladstone's gas plants and alumina refineries. This is reality common sense. Colin Boyce is also a farmer who said bluntly, if we walk away from the affordable coal-fired power, we're walking away from jobs. Now, remember, we were told at the last election when the Teals got elected, it was all about net zero and climate change and the coalition had to change and get with it. Really? Well, it was barely a swing against Colin Boyce, yet he was a brand new candidate. In fact, his two-party preferred vote was almost 54%. The Greens got 4% of the vote. Wouldn't you be fighting in the seat of Flynn? Because it was all mining, all agriculture. This is where you'd have to go up and make sure your policy stood up. The Greens got 4%. They were fighting against coal mines. In an outstanding maiden speech, Colin Boyce issued a warning to the wider electorate of Australia, and he said, quote, I say this, ordinary Australian people require and deserve the basics of life, food security, water security, energy security, and national security. He threw in a little bit of Latin with it. He said, the omnibus dubidatum, question everything he said. Now this bloke's now the Shadow Minister for Infrastructure, Transport and Regional Development. I'll talk to him in another interview about that. We're not about that tonight, but I can't see any infrastructure project going ahead with renewable energy. He joins me. Colin Boyce, congratulations, a magnificent maiden speech. That should be circulated to every politician. I suppose there are only about 10 in the house to hear you. But I've got to say to you a little bit of personal stuff. I can identify with that. You said, this bloke said in his maiden speech, and he was talking about me and himself. He said, I remember candles, kerosene lanterns, kerosene fridges, but he was a bit ahead of me. He's had 32 volt lighting plants. We didn't have any of them. Party line telephones. Yes, they existed where everyone could hear your conversation, but Colin, we weren't good enough for a telephone. There were no telephone wires anywhere, but mosquito nets, I remember them, and fly paper. He said there was a wood stove, that's me, and a wood heap, the ax and the chopping block, the chook pen, yep, where the eggs came from, and the garden where the vegetables grew. I'm with Colin Boyce on all of that. Trips to town were rare, yep, with the exception of the mailman who came weekly. And he said we'd see no one other than immediate family for weeks. Colin, good to talk to you. Oh, dear, you're a breath of fresh air. That speech should actually be on the front page of every paper around the country. Times have changed, we admit that, but not necessarily for the better, eh? Oh, well, thank you, Alan. It's great to be on your uh, program uh, finally. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I remember those things well. And um, things have changed. And that's uh, all because of the uh, advent of uh, affordable electricity, uh, energy. That is what has driven us as a nation to develop our industry, our agriculture, and uh, all of the things that we take for granted these days. Mm. One of the big problems that I see is that metropolitan Australia has become absolutely divorced from how the necessities of life get produced and how they get provided for them. And this is a real problem for us. Absolutely. I'll come to that in a minute. But listen, don't you remember the fly paper? People wouldn't understand, but the flies ran into it and they got stuck. And then you sort of emptied the flies out. And the kerosene table lamps, my mother would turn them out after we were served dinner. Otherwise, we'd be eaten by the moths. So we ate in the dark. And the well, kerosene fridge, hey, gosh, we've left yeah, that behind. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was the way we survived back in those days. Mm. And uh, it's some time ago now. And, um, uh, you know, we're trying to live on a sustainable planet. 
I still have kerosene fridges that I grew up with and they still go. <laughs> what happens to everybody's fridge now when, when it when it stops working? You just take it down to the dump and you throw it away and go and buy another that's one. That's it. I mean, everything's got built today. Everything's got built in obsolescence, hasn't it? You know, you get it for a while that it's, that it's no good. I remember we used to have ice cream once a year and it was made in the kerosene fridge on Davis gelatine, I remember. And you thought you were, you yeah. thought you were millionaires. Yeah. And you had to go out and change, uh, kill the chook if you actually wanted roast chicken. That was once a year. Yeah. But you've made this very sensible point, or many sensible points. You said there's nothing like hunger to drive political change. Now, we're heading pitchfork into hunger if we think the new world can survive on renewable energy. But you mentioned Eastern Europe and a quarter of the world's wheat crop. How will this affect the rest of the world? Look, absolutely, Alan. And uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine and Eastern Europe traditionally produces uh, one quarter of the world's wheat crop. That's a huge amount of wheat. Uh, right now, over there, we see the uh, political events unfolding. Um, they're at war. The farmers are shooting bullets at one another. They are not producing the wheat that they should have. So it's a reasonable expectation to uh, say that that wheat crop production will be substantially limited to what it normally is. Mm. Therefore, you've got places like sub-Saharan Africa, which will be facing famine. And as we know, and the history books tell us this, Marie Antoinette got a head cut off because the peasants were starving. Uh, the Romanov family, they were executed for exactly the same thing. The peasants were starving. Uh, we see it unfolding right now in Sri Lanka, where a once self-sufficient nation who has produced enough food for itself and a net surplus, as a matter of fact, uh, made this crazy political decision to ban agricultural fertilisers and agricultural chemicals, and now they are literally starving. And what has become of that? Political turmoil. Uh, you know, they've invaded the uh, political houses in, in Sri Lanka, and it, it's um, mm. it's a basket case. Yes, yes, the, now. They've run out the president. The president's been run out. The Rajapaskas, the whole family's been run out. I mean, but in this country, you're talking about production. Some of the finest agricultural land, because it's understandable, the farmer has had drought swinging around his head for God knows how long. They come along and say, we'll give you a double market price per acre. He says, oh, bugger this. I'll go and live in the Mornington Peninsula or I'll live in Toowoomba. So some of the finest agricultural land is now being taken up with solar panel farms and wind turbines in our own country. Absolutely. And uh, the, the point to that is, is that there is very little agricultural land. Uh, first class agricultural land, there's something like two and a half percent of the land yes. mass of Australia yes. is classified as uh, A-grade first class agricultural land. And what we're seeing happening is these uh, renewable energy companies building wind turbine, uh, solar energy farms, all these sorts of things and taking up this bad, valuable um, food producing land uh, in the name of of, uh, uh, you know, lowering carbon emissions for Australia. 1.6% of the world's carbon emissions is produced by Australia. If we literally turned everything off here in Australia, it would make absolutely no difference, no no difference. difference whatsoever. Let's just come closer to home to our viewers. This bloke's electorate is twice as big as Tasmania, 132,000 square kilometres. Now, three coal-fired power stations in his electorate, Stanwell, Callide and Gladstone, 15 large coal mines. You think of the workers who are watching us here tonight, producing 90 million tonnes of coking and thermal coal this year, 15 coal mines, a CSG gas industry producing 25 million tonnes. This is Collins electorate of LNG exporting to the world. So Collins, simple question. What happens to all this under Bowen's plan, the Albanese plan? Well, that's, that's right. And uh, what will happen to it, and that's what concerns me the most, what will happen to people's jobs? What will happen to their livelihoods and their futures? What happens when you've got a house mortgage and you live in Gladstone and there's a proposal to shut down the coal industry when you rely on that? If you're an underground coal miner at Oakey Creek out uh, in the back of the electorate up near Emerald there, and you're operating the continuous miner underground, you're on a salary of $250,000 a year. How are you going to replace a job like that in the renewable sector? If you're a uh, dump truck driver at at, um, at Calide Mine or at uh, Anglo Coal, uh, it's a $150,000 a year job. How are you going to replace these people's income with uh, uh, jobs in the renewable sector if you shut these industries down? 
what is Australia going to do for the economic black hole that will be created? Brilliant. Every time there's a boatload of produce goes out of the port of Gladstone, it's all about generating income and money for the Australian economy. That's what pays for our hospitals, our schools, our roads. Uh, it pays the wages of our public servants, of our policemen, of our nurses, um, all of those sorts of things. That's where it comes from. I mean, this is unbelievable. You're just speechless. See, Gladstone, and, and we're not going to finish talking to Colin tonight, so we'll bring him back, but Gladstone is the home. It's the capital of his electorate. Gladstone, we all know where that is. It's home to Rio Tinto, Boyne Island Alumina Smelter, the Yarwin Alumina Refinery, the QAL Refinery, one of the world's largest refineries, by the way, the QAL Refinery. How do you power these outfits? I mean, Gladstone's the world's fourth largest coal exporting terminal. There's a huge agricultural sector in, uh, in Collins Electorate producing food and fibre of the whole world. Now, Colin, if you said, as you said in your maiden speech, brilliant maiden speech, the best for common sense that we've seen in ages, but you add heavy engineering, the transport sector, road, rail and shipping, your electorate is an economic powerhouse that generates the wealth for Australia and the Bowen proposal in, lay in energy policy destroys all of that. Yeah, well, um, you, know, you know, literally, what do you do? We're the people that will bear the brunt of the economic cost of this crazy energy energy policy that uh, we see unfolding in Europe, where they are literally going to freeze, uh, people will freeze to death this coming winter in Europe. Uh, we've seen Germany, who is possibly the world's uh, most advanced technologically industrial nation on the planet, expose their national security all over a crazy energy policy that they've developed over the last 15 odd years that is just simply unreliable. Right. Uh, we are going down the same road in Australia yep. here and surely people can wake up to what's right. going on. Okay, it's well, unfolding before us right now. Okay, we'll leave it there. The people I want to wake up are Peter Dutton and the opposition. I hope they've read this stuff. Colin, we'll leave it there. I'm going to have you back, but to our viewers out there, this is Colin Boyce, the member for Flynn, the Queensland electorate. Now, his maiden speech was on the 28th of July this year. You can find it in the Hansard, or you just Google it and you get hold of it, read it, hand it out, give it to people. The member for Flint. So Colin, we'll have you back next week. We're nowhere near finished. You've got a story to tell and we're happy to let you tell it. Thank you, Alan, uh, be happy to. All right, there he is. Common sense, eh? But common sense is not common, we know that. Colin Boyce, the federal member for Flint. The chill winds continue to blow across the arts sector. During coronavirus, they were devastated. At the time, the Artistic Director of Opera Australia, Lyndon Terracini said, and I quote, while governments are now loading up our children and most likely our children's children with massive amounts of debt, one of the consequences is that governments will be resistant to using their reduced financial resources to support new generations of artists. Unquote. He asked at the time, what does this mean for the cultural life of our future nation? He said, many young and emerging artists will have no possibility of earning a living from their art. They're naturally talented. They've spent most of their lives practicing and developing their art. Their training has been more intensive and more difficult than virtually any other profession. But now, sadly, he said, they see no future. They've devoted their lives, their entire beings to their chosen profession. And now most of them will have no choice but to retrain. They'll need to forget their dream a dream they've lived for, with, for, lived with for most of their lives, unquote. Well, as their voices were being silenced by the economic devastation of COVID, Lyndon Terracini was almost a lone voice in the defence of the arts. He made the point without pumping up his own tyres that Opera Australia is a flagship company. And in the year before COVID, there were 662,000 attendees and the company sold 540,000 tickets. It is the only major opera company in the world for which more than 50% of its revenue comes from the box office. And in the year before COVID, they employed 1,323 artists. I say this because very little attention has been given to the fact that the artistic director, the extraordinary Lyndon Terracini, with over a year to go on his contract, renewed by the Board of Opera Australia in 2019, extending the contract to 2023 because of his accomplishments, Lyndon Terracini is now quitting immediately. I think the new chairman of the board, a good man, Rod Sims, formerly the boss of the ACCC, 
needs to start asking some questions. The previous chairman, Glyn Davis, has left. The outstanding technical director, Cliff Bothwell, has left. The marketing boss, Kent, Hef Kent Heffernan, has left. And this after a new chief executive arrived last year, Fiona Allen. She arrived with a lot of noise. There was talk of a new broom sweeping into Opera Australia. I don't know what it was meant to sweep. She was looking at Opera Australia's business model. Seemed to be okay to me. And she wanted to, quote, refashion the company's operating model and, quote, put more of an Australian stamp on what is essentially a European art form. <laughs> she said that her role was to set Opera Australia's overall strategy in consultation with the board. Well, the strategy appears to be making it difficult for talented people to remain. Musically, she studied the clarinet, that was about it. But she said she wanted to be an arts manager. Terracini, on the other hand, was born into music and is coming to Opera Australia, the nation's biggest performing arts company and one of the world's biggest opera companies. Terracini's coming was transformative. One wonders how anyone else could have rebuilt Opera Australia after the devastation of coronavirus. He was criticised for promoting dual productions of Phantom of the Opera. Not Opera, though, not Fairdinkham Opera, they say. But his answer was simple. He had to pull the company out of the doldrums yet again, as he did when he arrived there over a decade ago. Indeed, in 2019, ticket income was $73 million, creating a surplus for Opera Australia that they'd never heard of, $6.3 million. As a musician, Terracini started on the cornet, progressed to flugelhorn, trombone, euphonium, euphonium and timpani. As a baritone, Terracini sang major roles such that when he played the escaped Cuban slave in German composer Henze's El Samar O.N., the music critic writing for The New Yorker described Terracini's performance as, quote, smouldering, explosive, shrieking, whispering, singing, expansive, fierce, suddenly sly, tremendous. Well, he was headhunted for Opera Australia after a disastrous period for the company during the global financial crisis. Within a few years, Terracini made Opera Australia into a production powerhouse, diversifying its activities with opera on TV, digital opera with LED screens, and as you know, opera on the beach and opera on the harbour. Opera Australia receives about $25 million in federal taxpayers' money, so the taxpayers are entitled to know why Terracini is quitting almost immediately. It's only months ago that Lyndon Terracini said, fundamentally, I'm still a singer. My heart will always be in an opera company. And following coronavirus, he has again dug the company out of financial trouble. Well, now under Fiona Allen, perhaps the broom is being swept through and the business model is changing. But it's easy to talk in cliches, far more difficult to get results. Lyndon Terracini, the artistic director of Opera Australia, has got results. He's achieved them for 13 years. He now joins others in an abrupt departure. Questions should be asked as to where to now for the company. Opera Australia. Terracini has been a magnetic figure for opera here, placing entertainment through artistic endeavour as the ultimate goal. And he's succeeded. He will be farewelled on October 29 on the opening night of Verdi's Attila. As an opera lover, I must say that I wonder about the future and worry of the company without Terracini. And I wonder what the agenda is for the new chief executive of Opera Australia, Fiona Allen. Is Opera Australia under Fiona Allen going to become woke and a platform for the culture wars, giving preeminence to diversity and inclusivity, which may well be at odds with artistic excellence and entertainment? I have to say, I'm not optimistic. Well, before we go, having spoken to Colin Boyce earlier tonight, green propaganda seems to have captured the hearts and minds of Australia's political and corporate elites. I can only come to the conclusion that these political and corporate types are followers, not leaders, and obviously don't read or study. Cop this. Every day we hear Australia's energy ministers, top CEOs and senior bureaucrats say Australia can be a renewable energy superpower. And they say we must, quote, take advantage of our abundant sun and wind resources, unquote. They say we can use renewable energy to make Australia a green manufacturing superpower. And they say we should do this to, quote, capitalise on the global transition to net zero, unquote. In other words, the Greenies think that by relying on weather-dependent solar panels and wind turbines, 
we can start manufacturing the solar panels and wind turbines here. They've already been proven wrong. And we can thank the Europeans for exposing their stupidity. This week, the media reported that 35 gigawatts of solar panel manufacturing projects in Europe are at risk of being mothballed because power prices are too high. According to energy consultancy, Rystad Energy, the energy intensive nature of both solar PV and battery cell manufacturing processes is forcing many operators to temporarily close or abandon production facilities as power prices soar. The numbers prove my point. According to Reistad, Europe's low carbon manufacturers have based their buildup of production capacity on stable power prices of about 50 euros a megawatt hour. But because of the failure of renewables to provide cheap and stable energy and the war in Ukraine, prices around 300 to 400 euros a megawatt hour, six to eight times higher than what is required to profitably produce solar panels. Well, we face the same fate. According to data that ADH has gathered from the Australian energy market operator, power prices on the East Coast are far too expensive to produce solar panels. And we've just read today, they've just shot up. I'll talk about that tomorrow. Now, when adjusting for exchange rates, the average price for power on the East Coast for September was almost double the price required to profitably produce solar panels in Europe, a region with a very similar wage, tax and regulatory structure to that of Australia. My point, Australia has no hope of becoming a renewable energy superpower. Our energy prices are way too high to manufacture these sorts of technologies. And our energy prices are too high because of our reliance on the very technologies the green elites want to produce with the little power we have. As a result, China will continue making most of the world's solar panels that Australia is foolishly installing to keep the lights on, all while Xi and his cronies build another 100 coal-fired power plants to keep their racket going. When will we wake up here in the West? Because if we don't now, we never wait, but we may never wake up. I'll tell you something, we'll wake up when the lights in our homes and the traffic lights and the computers no longer work and you can't charge your mobile phone. Time to start thinking. It may already be too late. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8pm. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.